And it is Jesus who makes this a glorious day. Welcome to this morning's broadcast. We are so glad you could join us. Our series from Romans continues this morning. Please turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Verses 1 through 8 will be our focus. We can praise the Lord that even our unfaithfulness does not void our faithful God's promises. We will also see that even though we choose to sin, we can't choose the negative consequences of those sins. And now with his message for this morning, our pastor, Robert Elliott. Objection question number one, recall, was is there any advantage to being Jewish? Objection question number two, does unbelief cancel the promises? Does unbelief cancel the promises? Please notice that verse 3 names all of God's promises to Israel the faithfulness of God. It's like the writer bundles up all the many promises that God made to his people, the Jews, in the Old Testament, and he relabels the whole package, the faithfulness of God. Verse 3, what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Now, just what aspects of faithfulness are in view here? Like I said, the faithfulness of God is the sum total of all of the promises that God made to the Jews in the Old Testament, and to get even more specific, the covenants that God unconditionally entered into with the Jews that we find in the Old Testament. This is the faithfulness of God, to be specific, in the Old Testament. The covenants that God struck with Israel. Which covenants, you say? Well, the Abrahamic covenant, God's faithfulness in respect to the Abrahamic covenant. We read of that first in Genesis chapter 12. It promised a Jewish nation, a Jewish land, and that the Jews would be the vehicle of blessing to the world because in this humanity, Jesus Christ was Jewish. The faithfulness of God in the Abrahamic covenant, but there's more. The faithfulness of God in the Mosaic covenant, Exodus chapters 19 through 40. The Mosaic covenant is also called the law. The law, the Ten Commandments and all the rest of the law that God dictated to his people in chapters 19 through 40 of Exodus. God's faithfulness in respect to the Mosaic law. God basically said to the Jews, obey my law and I'll bless you. Disobey my law, and I'll curse you. It's the only conditional covenant that God struck with Israel in all of the Old Testament. God said, obey my law, I'll bless you. Disobey my law, I'll curse you. There's more, though. The faithfulness of God, not only with respect to the Abrahamic covenant, not only with respect to the Mosaic covenant, but also the faithfulness of God in respect to the Palestinian covenant. That is Deuteronomy chapter 30. That was God unconditionally telling the Jews, you will have a piece of real estate in Palestine that I will give you. You know what? They don't have all the land yet, but they will. And they'd be foolish to give away any more land for promised peace because it will not buy promised peace. I believe that Prime Minister Netanyahu will not make that mistake that other Jewish prime ministers have made in the past. 
The faithfulness of God in respect to the Abrahamic covenant, the faithfulness of God in respect to the Mosaic covenant, the faithfulness of God in respect to the Palestinian covenant, but there's more. The faithfulness of God in respect to the Davidic covenant, the covenant made with David, 2 Samuel 7. Essentially, God said that Messiah, humanly speaking, would sit on David's throne in Jerusalem to rule his kingdom on earth. It's going to happen. Bank on it. There's more, not only faithfulness of God in the Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, Palestinian covenant, Davidic covenant, but also in the new covenant, which is Jeremiah chapter 31. This is God's unconditional promise to his Jews that one day they will believe on Messiah and be given a new heart of flesh instead of their current heart of stone. This is the faithfulness of God as a summary over the covenantal promises of God in the Old Testament to the Jew. All of that faithfulness of these covenants smashes, writes off, and dwarfs the question, if some did not believe, will their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? Will it? No. God is the promise keeper, the perfect promise keeper. God's delivery on his promises to Israel is not predicated on Israel being obedient. These are unconditional covenants except the Mosaic covenant, which we call the law. God said in that conditional covenant, you obey my law, bless you. You disobey my law, curse you. All the other covenants are unconditional. And so when it says in verse 3, what then? If some did not believe, their their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Then verse 4, may it never be. Strongest negative in the Greek language. May it never be. Meganoito. God forbid, we might say in the the vernacular, are you crazy? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, although every man found to be a liar. It's God who is true. We mess up with lies. We mess up with not delivering our promises at the wedding vow. We mess up our promises when we sign a contract at work and don't work all the hours we signed at work. We're the ones who are the liars. God is never a liar. He keeps his promises. Verse 4 emphatically screams, does the unfaithfulness of a Jew break the faithfulness of God? Verse 4 screams, are you crazy? God forbid, may it never be. Perish the thought. Strongest negative in all of the Greek of the New Testament. And so the thought started here with the right premise that Jews were not believing in God's promises for them. That was true. When Paul wrote to the Roman Christians, the Jews, many of them, were not believing the promises of God would be theirs. Like my friend who packed his backpack every school day with all he needed to survive in the woods without parents because he didn't believe his alcoholic mother would care for him like she said she would. Oh, yes, there were Jews back then who did not believe in the faithfulness of God. But did their unbelief nullify God's faithfulness to keep his promises? No. God is absolutely faithful, while his chosen people have often been unfaithful sinners. Aren't you glad that's not just true of Jews who are unfaithful, but of us? God is absolutely faithful, while his chosen people have often been unfaithful sinners. Then verse 4 goes on to quote Psalm 51, verse 4. You recall, I hope, that Psalm 51 is David's psalm of confessing his sins of adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah. And in the second part of verse 4, 
in my Bible, these are capitalized letters to signify it's a quote from the Old Testament, that thou mightest be justified in thy words and mightest prevail when thou art judged. The idea here is that when King David sinned against God, God justly judged him while keeping all the promises of the Davidic covenant made to him previously. What did that look like? How did that play out? After David's sin with Bathsheba and murder, premeditated murder of Bathsheba's husband, we know that when he confessed his sin in Psalm 51 that God forgave him his sin because he should have been stoned to death. There was no sacrifice for King David or any other Jew under the law for premeditated murder. But God showed mercy upon him and forgave him because he confessed his sin in Psalm 51. But the aftermath of his sin with Bathsheba wrecked havoc the rest of his days. You know, you can choose to sin and I can choose to sin, but we cannot choose the negative consequences of our sin. David couldn't and neither can we. Here's how it all played out. After David's forgiven sin, there were strife and immorality within David's kingdom. 2 Samuel 12. The baby conceived in the adulterous union died. 2 Samuel 12. Then Amnon's immorality followed by his violent death, 2 Samuel 13. Then came Absalom's public immorality, 2 Samuel 16. Then came Absalom's violent death, 2 Samuel 17. Then David's united kingdom blew apart, 2 Samuel verse 19. But the point is, incredible body of Christ, the point is God's faithfulness to keep his promises is untarnished amid all the negative consequences of David's sins. God's faithfulness, specifically the Davidic covenant, is not aborted, sidetracked, nullified, shut down by David's unfaithfulness in sin. Because God is a promise keeper and God keeps all of his promises. Thanks, Pastor Rob, for your message today. And now it's time for Youth Talk with Pastor Nicholas Rogers. Good morning, this is Pastor Nicholas, another edition of Youth Talk. And today we want to start a series on Hear Me Roar, talking about evangelism. And as we know in our lives, whether we want to believe it or not, we all are evangelizing in some way or the other. So the way we conduct ourselves, people see um, if we are truly who we say we are. But I want you to think of something bold that you may have said before. And some of those bold things can be like this. Someone who may never want, who may say, I will never eat ice cream again in my whole life. And we hear that, and that's a very bold statement to think about. If you're anything like me, I love ice cream. I like ice cream. I like different flavors. Cookies and cream is my favorite. You know, I love when I go to the States. There's a place called Cold Stone. They do this nice ice cream. So if I said that, I would not be able to, to live up to that. It's just like many people, when they go on a diet, they say, I'm going to give this up. And they notice the, the mo- that they love to, to eat that or, or to, to drink that. It becomes very hard. But what is that really the boldest statement that you could make? That I'm not going to eat ice cream. Or I'm not going to eat this thing. In fact, boldness is a subject as we look at this entire series. We're going to talk about how we need to be bold in our everyday life. When we look at this, we're going to talk about how we got to be bold in our faith and convictions. Even when the rest of the world is pressuring you to change, to compromise, or to conform. Again, for me, as I consider my life, 
Um, when I was growing up, one of the things was I played sports, and one of the things is that I, I just never had a desire to drink or to smoke because, and that's that I want to be an athlete, and I wanted to make sure that I did all I can to prepare myself for that particular thing in my life, that I wanted to be the best athlete, and I know that smoking would not help that because, as we know, it, it messes up your lungs and the way you breathe, and, and the list goes on. But when I consider when I was in high school, I took a stand when other people would. Um, I remember going to a party one time and, and realizing that we were all underage and, and drinks were being served. And at that time, many people would say, well, what's wrong with you? Are you a punk? But I called my parents to come pick me up because I didn't want to be around that. And that was a bold thing that I had to do because I had to take myself out of that environment. I had to take myself out of that because I want to take a stand for what my convictions were, what I truly believed. And I think that when we go about life, we all have our different convictions. We all have those things that we're going to stand up for. You know, when I consider even today's culture and I consider different people who love, you know, sports, they stand up for the person who they think is the best, the greatest player of all time. And they'll debate that and they'll be bold on their conviction. This is why. And, and they'll know everything about it. But when we consider our lives, we consider being bold. We're going to look at an example as one of Daniel. And Daniel showed us exactly what it meant to be bold, what it meant to stand up when no one else would, and what it meant to stand up when everything around him and everyone was doing their own thing. And this is what it said in Daniel chapter 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of King Joachim, of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Joachim of Judah over to him, and along with some of the vessels from the house of God, Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family, and young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom knowledge, receptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was there to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned him daily provision from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. And as we see among them from the Judahites were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them the names he gave to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this is where we start our story. We start to look at, as they looked at these different men, and they saw what was going on, these men were chosen to, to do a work and, and from the king. But one thing was this, Daniel had made a vow. And in verse 8 it said, Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief unit not to defile himself. God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. Yet he said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and drink. What if he sees your faces looking thinner than other men? You would endanger my life with the king. So here it is. The challenge is out. You know, we don't want to eat this food. The eunuch is saying, look, what happens if you lose too much weight and you don't look the same? You don't look as strong and mighty as the other men. So Daniel said to the guard whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. Please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance 
and appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food. Deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them about this and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. The guard continued to remove their food and wine. They were to drink and gave them vegetables. And we see just as in this passage, we see how the God had honored their boldness, how God had made them look better and healthier than all the other, you know, guys who were chosen because they, they followed after what God wanted them to do. You see, verse 17 said, God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. At the end of the time that the king had said to present them, the chief eunuch presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. And the king interviewed them, all among all of them. No one was equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to attend the king. So we see, it's clearly seen here, as you take a stand for God and you're bold, there's going to be opposition, there's going to be trials, there's going to be problems. But let me ask you a question. Who would you rather take a stand for? What would you rather be bold for? Would you rather follow the crowd and do what the crowd is doing, or would you rather be bold and stand up when other people are doing whatever they want to do? You know, for me in my life, when I consider um, growing up and I consider what I went through in life and, and taking different stands, it became difficult because sometimes you would be all alone. You may be doing this by yourself and, and you may have no one else with you. But the reality is that even when you take a stand, you're doing what you're supposed to do. God is always there with you. And as we start this series and we talk about boldness, and next week we're going to continue to look at some of the things that we have in common with Daniel. I want us to really search your, your heart and your life and ask yourself this question. Am I willing to stand when no one else stands? And am I willing to, to follow God when no one else is doing it? Because in reality, God is the reason and God has a purpose for our life. And the only way we're going to know God's purpose for our life is if we follow His will for our lives. So again, I challenge you, be bold, be courageous, take a stand when it's hard, but take a stand because you have God on your side, and that's all that you need. And now, today's ministry spotlight. This morning in the radio studio, I'm pleased to have my friend uh, Patrick Rutherford, who serves as the regional director of Precept Ministries for the Caribbean. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Wilhelmus. <laughs> yes, we are just uh, going to talk a bit this morning about Bible study. I know that's near and dear to your heart. And um, what kind of Bible study results in the best results? <sighs> Pastor Rob, I'm going to speak with a little bias, um, but the best uh, way to get the results out of Bible study is to study inductively. What I mean when I say studying inductively is simply finding out what the text says, getting an understanding of what it means, and then taking those truths and applying them to your life. So observation, mm -hmm. interpretation, mm -hmm. and then application. Absolutely. And uh, what kind of results can a Bible student who takes that approach expect? A totally transformed life. Mm. Um, I'm living proof of it, Pastor Rob. But if I'm looking for the truth, whether I believe it or not, it's in it is it it is in God's word. Yes. And um, I get I get invited to choose whether or not I'm going to live those truths out. 
the Word of God tells me to live with my wife in an understanding way. Yes. I get to live that out. Um, the Word of God tells me to flee immorality. Yes. I get to live that out. Mm-hmm. Um, the Word of God tells me how I can keep my way pure mm-hmm. by keeping it according to His Word. I get to live that out. And so um, the Word of God um, is foundational uh, in my life, as it should be in any believer's life, whether young believer or older believer, uh, as it relates to how they live each day. So you're saying that in your experience that the Bible is... We don't have to make it relevant. It already is relevant. Absolutely relevant. Yes, sir. Indeed. Indeed. Excellent. Um, what would you say to a Christian listener today who is um, rather of the persuasion that he or she will never really be able to understand the Bible for themselves? They're right. <laughs> Tell us about that. <laughs> well, the, the, the point being... Uh, it's not meant for us to understand everything of God's Word. But God's given us His Spirit, and he's, I see the Holy Spirit as an in-house tutor. An in-house tutor. That's an interesting thing. Tell us about that. Well, well, if I can just finish that thought, if I keep the Word of God closed, I won't ever get to know what it, what it says. But when I open God's Word, um, my tutor says, Patrick, stop here. Let's consider this. Um, let, let's deal with this little issue here in, in, in your life. I'll give an example. Um, in First John chapter 4, uh, it's riddled with the word love. Um, uh, you, you, you can't miss it. It's, it's just glaringly there. Uh, the, question, the question for me is, will I love in a way that is prescribed by, 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 by God's Word. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no guesswork in there. Um, uh, you either obey it or you, you don't obey it. Um, uh, I'll mention 1 Peter 3, 7 again with husbands uh, loving your wives. That is what the text tells me to do. Yes. Um, and the more I interact with the Word of God, um, that in-house tutor shows me how to do just that. Mm. It may be when I get home, Pastor Rob, and I'm tired, but I see my wife fussing around in the kitchen instead of grumping off because I'm hungry and going to watch television. Spirit of God may say, Patrick, go in there and help. That's living with her in an understanding way. Beautiful. You, you see? So um, <clears throat> we would reject then the concept that you have to be an ordained pastor to ever understand the Bible. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, as far as the inductive method is concerned and what we do with precept is that is exactly what our heart is to teach the everyday man, everyday woman, the benchwoman Joe and benchwoman Jane, that they can encounter God through his word by those simple tools of observation, interpretation and application. What does it say? What does it say? And then after figuring out what it says or what it doesn't say, here's what it means, finding out what it means and then having the audacity, the boldness to take what it says after understanding what it means and governing or ordering uh, uh, your life according to those truths you studied. How encouraging to think that the Bible is a revelation and not a concealment. It's not a puzzle. It's not a code to be snapped by the prose. Fantastic. Absolutely. Is there anything else uh, this morning, brother, you would like to say to uh, our listeners on this general topic of Bible study? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, 
one of the verses that, that get me up every day and put my clothes on and go out and meet people is Ezra 7.10. It says that Ezra set his heart to study God's Word, mm. to practice God's Word, and then to teach it to others mm. in that order. Mm. And so um, I challenge everyone with Ezra 7.10. I dare them. Um, study God's Word. Live out those truths that you've studied in God's Word. And then God gives you invitation, that invitation to share what you're living with someone else. And that's contagious. Yes, it's a contagious blessing. Mm -hmm. And that's the uh, transformative power of God's Word that we started with in this little spot. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So, listener, I hope you're encouraged. If you know Christ as Savior, you have the author of Scripture living inside of you full-time. And you can ask His help to observe the text, interpret the text, and then to apply the text in your life. God bless you as you seek to do that. It's time for answers to your questions. We urge you to take a moment and get a pen and paper and take down the references used so that you can do your own study later on. We here at Echoes of Calvary are always excited to receive your letters of support and your questions, which we seek to answer right away and also here on the show. You can send us your letters at eocradio at gmail.com That's eocradio at gmail.com Today, Pastor Elliot draws from Carl Laney's excellent book, Answers to Tough Questions. This book was published back in 1997. And once again, here is Pastor Robert Elliot. 1 Corinthians 13.8 brings forward the following question. Have tongues ceased? In upholding the permanence of love over temporal and partial gifts, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 10, Paul declares that tongues will cease. Paul associates this cessation of tongues with the coming of the perfect, Greek totelion. The key question for us is, what is the perfect? Some have argued that the perfect refers to the completed canon of Scripture, It then logically follows that since we have a completed scripture, tongues have ceased. Others have suggested that the perfect refers to the second coming of Christ. This view would allow for the continuation of tongues through this present age. A third view suggests that the perfect refers to the maturity of the body of Christ. This third approach seems broad enough to embrace the relative maturity implied in Paul's illustration in verse 11, as well as the absolute maturity depicted in verse 12. The word teleos, mature, pictures the church growing collectively as a body, beginning with its birth and progressing through different stages through to the present age. The church will reach complete maturity at the return of Christ. The question, when will tongues cease, is bound with the question, when will the church be mature? Certainly the church will be mature at the return of Christ, verse 11. It may also be considered mature when a time of continuing revelation is no longer necessary. At such a time, the gifts of knowledge, tongues, and prophecy will no longer be needed to provide or to verify special revelation. You've been listening to Echoes of Calvary, 
a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church, Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship services are at 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. in our sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We encourage you to join us. Feel free to write us at eocradio at gmail.com. That's eocradio at gmail.com or P.O. Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And remember, everyone needs a savior.